Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. It's good to have all of you here this morning. I see some new faces, some guests. Welcome. Glad to have you with us in church today. We continue our study through the book of Philippians, Paul's letter of joy to the Christian and to the Christian church. And this morning we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the culture in which the Philippians lived in and reflect upon that with regard to the culture that you and I are living in. And the reason that the Apostle Paul does that, and we're going to do that this morning, is to remind us that no matter what our situation, no matter what our circumstance, no matter what... uh, may be taking place in our world, in our country, in our state, even in this region. We as Christians have joy in Jesus Christ. Our relationship to the Lord ensures that we have a deep-seated, soul-satisfying calmness and assurance in our heart. Our relationship to the world, not so much. Because many of the things in the world, if not all of the things in the world, affect us circumstantially, which means we can be up one day and down the next. We can be having a good day today, not a good day tomorrow. But because our relationship with God is constant, should be constant, should be maintained day in and day out, we have that joy within us, that calm assurance, that deep-seated satisfaction that keeps us getting up in the morning and living our lives to the honor and to the glory of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that this morning, but I want you to stand with me as we turn to Philippians chapter 2 in honor of God's Word, Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 5 through 18, but we're going to focus our attention on verses 15 and 16. Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ 
that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. This is the word of the Lord. We pray his blessing upon the reading of his word. You may be seated. The two principles involved in living the sanctified life, that is, in conforming to the image of Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul says, is our goal as Christians. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. That's not right. Romans 8, verse 29. The two principles that are involved in living the sanctified life is, first of all, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And the second is that God is working in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. We are to live out, if you're a Christian, we are to live out day by day, moment by moment, we are to live out the dynamics of the salvation that God has blessed us with through His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. While at the same time, we surrender to God's stirring up in us the desire and the motivation to do exactly that. To live out the dynamics of salvation that He has blessed us with. Now, the question is, how do we practically do that? How do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? The Apostle Paul in Verses 15 and 16 gives us four things that we need to consider. Four things that we need to consider in the working out of our salvation with fear and trembling. The first matter that we need to consider is to remember the generation that we're living in. Remember the generation that we're living in. We live in a crooked and perverse generation. We live in a crooked and perverse generation. Now, Satan doesn't want you to think that. And in many instances, he blinds your eyes and your sensitivities to that. But make no mistake about it, when you consider the culture that we are living in compared to the truth of God's Word, we are living in a crooked and perverse generation. In verse 15, he states that very clearly to the Philippian Christians. They too were living in a crooked and perverse generation. Now understand, Although God is the sovereign Lord over all creation, and He is, Satan is the prince of the powers of the air. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. He's also the ruler of this world. John chapter 12, verse 21. He is the God of this world. He is the God, that, He is the one that the vast majority of people in our world worship. This means that He has a major influence on the ideas, the ideals, the opinions, the goals, the hopes and the views of many people on this planet. He impacts 
and he affects the world's philosophies, education, politics, and economics. The thoughts and the ideas and the opinions and the theology of false religions of the world are also under his control. In other words, Satan is no minor league player in the game of life. He is the God of this world. He is the prince of the powers of the air. He is the ruler of the nations. God is sovereign. The Lord God truly is sovereign over all of creation. And he has given us the responsibility through Adam and Eve to be his ambassadors, to be his emissaries, to be his uh, representatives in the earth. But we gave that responsibility over to Satan when we yielded to temptation in the Garden of Eden. Now look at verse 15. The Apostle Paul describes the generation of the Philippian church as crooked. As crooked. The word is scolios. Scolios. What does that sound like to you? Scoliosis. It is the Greek word from which we get our English word scoliosis. A person who physically suffers from scoliosis has an abnormal lateral curvature of the spine. A generation that suffers from scolios is warped and bent and twisted. Warped and bent and twisted. It's a culture that is corrupted. It has corrupted truth. It has corrupted values and virtues and ethics and morality. It is a culture that has become perverse. And that's the second word that Paul used to describe the generation that the Philippian Christians lived in. It was crooked and it was perverse. The word perverse, diastropho, means to distort. It means moral corruption. It means to turn away from the established standard. Crooked and perverse mean basically the same thing, but the application is a tad bit different. To be crooked is to twist the truth. To be perverse is to distort the truth. Let me give you an example. This is what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. God said to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, God said, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Now when Satan tempted Eve, he said to her, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
And there may be individuals who say, well, what's wrong with knowing good and evil? Well, the word knowing here is not just an intellectual knowledge, it is an experiential knowledge. Prior to the temptation, prior to Adam and Eve yielding to the words of Satan, Adam and Eve were innocent. They did not know sin. They did not know corruption. They did not know evil. But after listening to Satan and yielding to his words and taking the fruit that was forbidden, they came to know good and evil experientially. Evil came into their existence. It became sin to them because it was disobedience to God. Satan's words twisted. Satan's words corrupting the truth. Satan's words perverted. King Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 2, and I want you to turn back there. It's the Old Testament book. It's a good book. You should be reading it every day. It's practical wisdom that we should be um, rehearsing in our own lives. The book of Proverbs, it comes after the book of Psalms. So if you go to the middle of the Old Testament, you'll hit the book of Psalms, you turn right, and you get to the book of Proverbs, chapter 2, written by King Solomon, the wisest man on the planet. He was a very wise man, intellectually, and we'll just leave it at that. Proverbs chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Look at this. This is Solomon. Discretion will preserve you. Proverbs 2.11. Understanding will keep you to deliver you from the way of evil. From the man who speaks what? Speaks what? Perverse things. What does perverse mean? That's crooked. What's perverse mean? Distorted. To deliver you from the ways of evil, from the man who distorts. And we would say here, truth. Distorts. Perverse things. From those who leave the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness. Darkness is always a metaphor for sin. Who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the what? Perversity of the wicked. Who delight in the distortion, the perversion, the corruption of the wicked. Whose ways are what? Crooked, twisted, warped. And who are devious in their paths to deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. Who for, and he's not speaking about a literal woman here. He's speaking about evil. He's speaking about uh, those things that are corrupt, so on and so forth. He personifies that uh, by calling it a woman, a seductress. Who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house leads down to death and her paths to the dead. Two hundred years later, the prophet Isaiah writes the same thing 
about the Hebrew people. Look at Isaiah chapter 59. You're in Proverbs, turn right and go just a little ways to the prophet Isaiah chapter 59. Beginning in verse 2. God speaking to the children of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. But your iniquities have separated you from God. And your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered what? Perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are the works of iniquity and the act of violence in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are the thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves... What kind of paths? Crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know Peace. When Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, came down off of the Mount of Transfiguration, they met a man who said to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Jesus said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus wasn't speaking about his disciples whose faith in him was weak. He was speaking to the crowds who had no faith in him at all as the Son of God and as the promised Messiah. And what truth the Hebrew people had through Mosaic law, through the prophets, and through the writings, that truth had been twisted. That truth had been perverted. That truth had been corrupted by the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In fact, they had become so corrupt and so perverted that rather than honor the Son of God as their Lord and Savior, they pursued ways to condemn Him and to kill Him. There's very little difference between those days of the Old Testament and New Testament and the days that we're living in today. In fact, human society and culture has become more crooked and perverse than ever. This generation 
prides itself in being like the ancient Greeks and Romans in terms of politics and law and ethics and morality. You go back and you read the history of the Greek and the Roman empires and you'll find that yes, they were powerful and yes, they were glorious as nations among nations, but they were godless and corrupt and pagan. They were morally and ethically reprobate. We live in a day when we have politicians, but we don't have any statesmen. We have politicians, but we don't have any statesmen. And you ask, what's the difference between a politician and a statesman? A politician lives for the party. A statesman lives for the good of the country. Sacrifices for the good of the country. We have politicians but we don't have any statesmen. Leaders do what is expedient, not what's morally right. We live in a generation like the days of Micah in the Old Testament, in Judges chapter 17 and verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the generation we're living in. Yeah, we have laws upon laws upon laws upon laws. And every January, there's a new set of laws that we're to be aware of. A new set of laws that we're to ignore. We are a lawful nation, but we are a lawless people. Lawlessness abounds in this country. And the love for God and the love for His Son Jesus Christ and the love for His Holy Spirit and the love for one another is conditional or has gone cold. That's the generation we're living in. But let's not exempt the church Our churches pride themselves, and I'm not necessarily talking about this particular church, but churches in America pride themselves in being cosmopolitan like the New Testament church in Corinth, whose immorality made the pagan Corinthian citizens blush with shame. Or if The church in Ephesus that was busy in her religion, but her love for the Lord had grown cold. Or Smyrna, whose faith in Jesus Christ was beginning to waver. Or Pergamum, whose doctrines were more worldly than they were biblical. Or Thyatira, who had no problem with sexual immorality and perversion. Or Sardis, who was a church in name only. Or Philadelphia, 
that was growing spiritually weak to the point of giving up, or Laodicea, who was so spiritually wishy-washy and compromised that it made Jesus puke. Jesus said of the church at Laodicea, I want to spew you out of my mouth. That's a Hebrew word picture that means vomit. You ever think a church would get to such a point that Jesus would look upon that church and become nauseous? Beloved, I believe Jesus looks upon a lot of churches in America today and is sick at what he sees. The words of the Apostle Paul ring true today. And it's as if he was reading a modern newspaper when he writes in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I love this one. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. That's the generation we're living in. That's the culture. That's the society of our day. Spiritually warped, bent, and twisted. Morally, ethically, politically, and judicially corrupt to the core. It's not a pretty picture. But we're not here just to simply hang out the dirty laundry. The question is, living in a generation like this, how are we to practically work out our salvation with fear and trembling? How are we to live the Christian life as an individual and as a church in a world that is bent on self-destruction? A world that is influenced by Satan. A world that worships Satan. How are we to live a Christian life, a sanctified life? Well, look again at verse 15. The Apostle Paul tells us to remember that you are the children of God without fault. Remember that you are the children of God without fault. Now, what he's saying here is, I need to remind you that because you are a Christian, because you are a child of God, your sins have been forgiven. Your iniquity has been taken away. 
You have a new nature in Christ Jesus. You are a new creation in the Lord. Remember the world that you're living in, but remember that you're a child of God living in this world. We're not to become like the world that we're living in. We're to be Christ in the world that we're living in. Remember, you are the children of God without fault. We're no longer slaves to Satan and to sin. We're no longer a people of the flesh and of the world. We are the children of the true and the living God. Amen? The children of the true and the living God. The greatest characteristic... Now, there are a lot of characteristics uh, when, come, when it comes to talking about God. Holy, righteous, pure truth, all of those things, but the greatest characteristic of God is His love. Scripture says God is love. And since we are His children, we are to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen? And we are to love one another like we love ourselves. Now, Having been a pastor all of these years, I know that for the most part we don't have a problem with loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What we have the problem is loving one another like we love ourselves. But Jesus said to his disciples, listen, Jesus said to his disciples, hereby shall all men know that you are my disciples. What? That you have love one for another. Love becomes the key. It is the primary characteristic of God. It is the primary car characteristic of the people of God. That we love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that we love Him. And that we love one another as we love ourselves. Teacher. Which is the great commandment in the law? A lawyer asked Jesus one day. Jesus responded, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your affections, with all of your soul, your very being, who you are, and with all of your mind, your attitudes, your thoughts, your ideas. You're to love the Lord God with all of these. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. God is love. Love Him with everything you are and everything you have. And love one another with everything you are and with everything you have. First John chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Doesn't matter what you look like. Doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter what color your skin is. Doesn't matter what your language may be. We are called in Christ Jesus to love one another. We are called by the Apostle Paul to prefer others over ourselves. Because we love the Lord Jesus Christ our affections are to be set upon the things of God, not upon the things of the world. 1 John chapter 2, verses 
15 through 17. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. The world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God lives forever. Third, we're to remember that we are the children of God. Third, the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 15, we're to shine as lights in this world. We're to shine as lights in this world. The Apostle John is the master of the metaphor in Scripture, in the New Testament. He loves to compare and contrast metaphors in his books. And in doing so, he helps us to understand the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness or sin. The difference between godliness and ungodliness or evil. The difference between holiness and worldliness. Paul said we are to shine as lights in the world. Now speaking of Jesus, John said in John chapter 1 verses 4 and 5, in him, in Jesus, is life. And the life is the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. That word comprehend really means to overcome. The, the, the darkness of the world cannot stamp out the light of Christ. It cannot overshadow it. It cannot get rid of it. It cannot quench the light of Christ. And what John is saying here is that Jesus is life. All life is in him, and he's become our life. He's become our life. He is the creator of life. And this light that he shines, when you go back and you think about Jesus in the four Gospels, the light that he shines is the truth of God's Word. He came to a people who were called the people of God, but they didn't know God. They had no relationship with God. Their lives were bound up by rituals and ceremonies and laws and all of these other kinds of things. But they had no relationship with God. They didn't understand what the kingdom of God was really all about. They didn't understand what worshiping God was really all about. They had distilled the idea of worship just in going through ceremonies. Like a lot of religious people do today. Today is Sunday, I'm going to go to church. Why? Because it's my responsibility, it's my duty. And all the time we're sitting in church, we're thinking about other things. They had no relationship to God. They didn't know how to worship God. They didn't know how to obey God. They didn't know the laws of God. That All of those had been perverted by the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests. They had no knowledge of who God really, really was. And Jesus came to open their blinded eyes, to open their understanding, to pull back the veil and to reveal to them who God is, what the kingdom of God really is all about, what it means to worship God, what it means to serve God, what it means to live for God. Spiritual truth. That's what light represents. That's the metaphor that John uses to describe 
the truth of God. He, do, he reveals divine truth to our understanding. His divine truth continues to shine in our world that is growing darker and darker in evil and sin and ungodliness. As Christians, in Jesus Christ, we not only have human life, but we have spiritual life. We have abundant life, and we have eternal life. We know what true life is because we know who Jesus is. Speaking of Christians and their relationship to God, John said in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5, 6, and 7, This is the message which we've heard from Him and declare to you that God is light, truth, holiness, righteousness, love, all of these attributes. God is light and in Him there is no darkness, there are no lies, there is no evil, there is no sin, there is no unrighteousness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, that is sin and evil and wickedness, then we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now speaking of Christians and their relationship to each other, we can't leave that one out. Walking in fellowship with God, but walking in fellowship with each other. Another practical area of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. John again says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 9, 10, and 11, He who says he is in the light, God's truth, and hates his brother, understand what the word hate means here. It simply means to have no love. For your brother. I mean, you don't have to attack him. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to pull a Will Smith on him, you know. You just don't have to love him, care about him, regard him at all. That's what it means to hate your brother. Show no interest in his welfare, have no concern for his life and what he's going through. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You are so into the culture, the generation, into uh, the world that is crooked and perverse that you cannot even see the reality of what your brother and sister are going through, the struggles that they have, the burdens that they bear, the concerns that are eating them alive. Fourth and finally, the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 16, we are to hold fast the word of life. We are to hold fast the word of life. And I'll tell you, friends, I mean, loving one another is a, is a tough one. It's a tough one. I mean, we have to work at that one all day, every day, for the rest of our days. Because, you know, <laughs> there's some unlovely people out there. <laughs> 
right? Huh? There are some people out there that you'd rather get away from than love. But we're called in Christ Jesus. Listen, we're called in Christ Jesus not to be ourselves. We're called in Christ Jesus to be like Him. And there were some unlovely people in His day too. And one of them was one of His disciples. And He knew from the very beginning that Judas was going to betray Him and yet Jesus loved Him still. And Scripture says He loved Him till the very end. I can't comprehend that. And I know you can't either. Because I know if there's somebody in your circle of influence, if there's somebody in your camp that just despises you, you're not going to love them. How do I know that? Because I know you. And I know me. But here's another toughie. Hold fast the word of life. Now the word hold fast, those two words, one word in the Greek text, epeko, epeko, it means to pay attention to. It means to apply. And by paying attention to it and applying it into our own lives, we hold forth the word of God's truth to the world. It's the same thing as Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven. You pay attention to the word of God. You respect it. You honor it. You appreciate it. You apply it into your life. You live it so it becomes light into a dark world. People can see the light of Christ in you and can be drawn to him. Because of you. The Apostle Paul said to young Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, be pleasing to the Lord by living faithfully to His word and by sharing His word with others. We are to diligently study God's Word. We're to apply it into our lives and we're, pre we're to present it to others. Now you may very well say, well, I'm not a preacher, I'm not a teacher, I'm not an evangelist, I'm not a missionary. Yeah, but you are a Christian. Let your light shine. Let your light shine. Don't hide it under a bushel, Jesus said. Don't keep that light behind closed doors. The brightest light of your life should not be the light that emits from the TV set. It should be the light of Jesus Christ indwelling you. And so, biblical knowledge without spiritual wisdom. Biblical knowledge without spiritual wisdom is useless. And spiritual wisdom without Christian action 
accomplishes nothing. Biblical knowledge, you can have all the biblical knowledge in the world. You can be a Bible scholar. And many of the people in the days of Jesus were Bible scholars. But they were about as useful as screen doors on submarines. They were worthless. And yet they had all of this biblical knowledge. But they didn't understand a lick of it. Biblical knowledge without spiritual wisdom is useless. And spiritual wisdom without Christian action accomplishes absolutely nothing. We are to live for Christ, not just appreciate Christ. We are to serve Christ, not just speak His name every now and again. And so now, what do we do? Where are we at? How do we land this plane? Understand, remember, we live in a crooked and in a perverse generation. Make no mistake about that. Y'all may think things are going pretty good. But you can dress up a pig and take it downtown and pass it off as being something wonderful, but it's still a pig. Perfume it all you want to, it's still a pig. We're living in a crooked and perverse generation. And we may say that it's nice and it's good and it's to our advantage and it's this and it's that and it's so on and so forth, but it's still a world that worships the God of hell. It is still a world that is influenced by the powers of the enemy of God. And don't ever forget that. And he will use his influence in the world to shut you up to back you into a corner, to keep you fruitless and make you useless in the kingdom of God. You live, I live, in a crooked and perverse generation. We have for a long time and we will continue to live in a crooked and perverse generation until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. But the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, be careful how you live. Be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Amen and amen. David, come and lead us as we dismiss. Stand together and as we leave today... I'd like to encourage you as we face a new week, think of one thing right now that God is doing for you, not is giving you, but is doing for you. And with a heart of praise and a heart in a prayer, let's say these words, let's say these words together, not sing them. Praise God from, from whom, whom all blessings, blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And Lord, we say, Amen. Amen. Thank you.
you are dismissed. God bless you. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.